Hey, I'm Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast today. I hope that this message encourages you. I hope that it inspires you. And I hope that it causes you to dive deeper into God's word. I also hope that you have some community around you that you can talk through some of these things with. Now, I want to remind you that we are in the middle of our year in the story, which is really this deep dive into God's great story and our place in it. If you'd like more information about that or more information about our community here at Restore, you can get that on our website at restoreaustin.org. We'd really love to see you soon. Thanks for listening. You know, two weeks ago, I walked into this room um, riled up and angry. The attacks um, in Christchurch, New Zealand on the two mosques had just happened a couple of days before, and in those 48 hours, I had gone from shock and sadness to outrage bordering dangerously close to hate. And I had prepared a statement about the attacks, calling the perpetrator a bigot and a white supremacist and evil, and honestly, I was excited about unleashing some of the anger that I had pent up on this stage that morning. And so as 10 a.m. got closer and closer that day, I I went through my normal routine. Uh, We get here about 7 o'clock in the morning. We start setting everything up. So we're here doing that and and here in the kids' gym in the lobby. Uh, We're preparing communion. About 9.30, our band and our production team meet back there, and we just walk through the day, what it's going to look like, and go through the scheduling one last time. And then my very last thing, Right before um, everybody kind of gets here and then we start the gathering is, is I go right over there and I pray with our prayer team. And that day I walked over there and somebody on our prayer team, actually the leader of our prayer team, a guy named Ron, um, says, hey, how can we pray this morning? And I said, hey, I want to pray. Um, I want to pray for the victims of the attack and, and I want to pray for our time together. And um, I, I just, I, I'm just angry and And I just kind of vented and and was frustrated. And and he said, yeah, I get that, I get that. Are are we going to pray for uh, the perpetrator too? And I was like, nope. (laughs) He was like, well, why not? And I was like, well, uh, because I'm upset with him. And um, he said, well, you know, we have that video, and it says that um, you know, no matter who you are, or what you've done, you're welcome here. So, so if he came, would he be welcome here? And I was like, he's in jail, Ron. He can't come. <laughs> but even as I, as I fought back, even as I was angry with what he was saying, I knew, I knew that he was right. I knew that the radical love of Jesus compels us not just to pray for people that we like, people that we agree with, But actually, Jesus said to pray for our enemies, to love those who persecute us. I spent the rest of the time before the gathering, right back against that back wall, furiously editing the statement that I had prepared. When I walked up on stage, the the anger was still there, but the hate that I felt had gone away. Because to me, I had this this switch. The perpetrator was no longer an evil person in my mind. He was someone who had given in to the influence of evil. And that's a subtle difference, but it's an important one. And and I want to say again for clarity, that doesn't mean that he shouldn't face consequences. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't expose the harmful ideologies that drive him and drive many others to do this. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't work for changes in our world, but it does mean that we have to understand that humanity, what Paul calls flesh and blood here, is not our greatest enemy. 
Our greatest enemy is the evil that humanity too often embraces, gives in to. And again, it may sound like a subtle difference, but it's a vital one. You see, what happened to me up here two weeks ago has been a part of a larger journey that I've been on over the last couple of years. A journey of understanding that our fight against evil in this world isn't against flesh and blood, but against something much more sinister. Now, I can't speak for everyone else in the room, but for me, this understanding doesn't come naturally. If I see someone hurting someone else, I want to hurt them back, right? This is systematic in our culture. We think violence is the answer to violence. One of our favorite sayings is you have to fight fire with fire, right? There's a problem with that. When you fight fire with fire, everyone just ends up on fire, right? Martin Luther King Jr. famously said, hate begets hate, violence begets violence, toughness begets a greater toughness. We must meet the forces of hate with the power of love. Man, I love that quote from Dr. King, but he didn't make it up. He took it right from Jesus. Matthew 26, 52, Jesus says, put your sword back in its place, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. But this isn't easy. I'm not going to stand up here and pretend that it is. Especially when bad things are happening all around us. And we're just trying to make sense of why these things are happening. And the default, for me at least, and I think for our society as a whole, is to put people into one of two categories, right? Bad people and good people. This makes it easy, right? We hate the bad people. We love the good people. When bad things happen to bad people, it's fine. When good things happen to good people, it's fine. Everything works out. It keeps it nice and tidy and neat. But this simplistic categorization breaks down, because inevitably, a bad person does something good, and a good person does something bad, and it messes with us. So what's the answer? Now, you may not agree with me on this, and that is certainly your prerogative, but I've become convinced that no person is evil. There are simply people who have given in to the influence of evil at all different stages categories and levels. This moves a spectrum from from like gossip on one side to mass murder on the other side, but the influence behind these things is the same. It's the same evil that Adam and Eve met in the garden that said, you don't really have to listen to God, right? You can kind of do your own thing. It's the same one that Jesus said comes to kill and steal and destroy, the same one that tempted Jesus out when he was in the desert, if you remember that story, 40 days and 40 nights, and said, I just deny God, do your own thing. I can make you rich, powerful, beyond your wildest imagination. It's the same evil that Paul talks about as he wraps up his letter to the Ephesians. Chapter 6, verse 10, he says, a final word, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. This is our eighth and final week of this series that we've been in on Ephesians. Now, you may have noticed that Paul starts off the passage we just read with a final word. This teaching on the influence of evil is so important, Paul has saved it for last. It's the last thing that he wants to tell this group of churches before he wraps up his letter to them. 
Now, there are a few ways that we could handle the verses that we just read. I could say something like, hey, look, evil, the devil, powers of darkness, they exist. It's an unseen reality. Just wrap your head around it, get used to it, and move on and talk about the armor of God. That's one option. Or we could go the other way and do a whole series on what these powers are and how they operate it, how they work in our world. But I don't think that the first option really does justice to what we're talking about. And, and we may do the second option at some point, but we don't have time for it this morning. So we're going to do a third option. We're going to watch a five-minute video from a group called The Bible Project. The Bible Project is a group that we watch videos during their, our Advent series this past Christmas. And it's, it's a group out of Portland, Oregon. And they have videos on every single book of the Bible as well as kind of the major themes that run throughout God's great story. I highly recommend checking all their stuff out. Bibleproject.com um, is so good. The video that we're going to show this morning gives a great overview of the spiritual realm and the powers of evil. It's been so helpful for me in understanding and explaining this difficult topic. So we're going to watch it together. Here it is. For most of human history, people have believed in some kind of spiritual realm that exists alongside the world as we know it. Right. And the biblical authors are no exception. Yeah. For them, the spiritual realm is a different kind of realm than ours. And to highlight that difference, the Bible refers to God's space as the sky or the heavens. Because the sky is really different from the land. It's above and beyond. And up there are shiny bodies that move around. I think of these as flaming gas balls. But when the biblical authors looked up, the stars gave them a way to talk and think about spiritual beings. In the Bible, they're called the sons of God, or the rulers and authorities, or even sometimes the divine council. So that sounds really important. What does the divine council do? Well, they're introduced in Genesis chapter 1, where they're called the host of heaven, that is, the sun, moon, and stars. And there, they're also called signs, meaning that their power and status symbolizes and points to God's power and status. Yeah, so in Genesis 1, God appoints them to rule over the day and night. Exactly. And then later in the Bible, we're told that they were celebrating God's power and creativity when he created the world. Like the cheering section of a game. Yeah, right. There are also stories in the Bible where God invites the divine council to participate in making a decision. Like when they help decide how to bring down the corrupt Israelite King Ahab. Or in the book of Job, where they debate God's policy of rewarding people who do good. So they're like God's staff team. But why does God need a team? If he's powerful enough to create the whole universe, he could surely rule it without any help. Well, he doesn't need them. But apparently, the God of the Bible wants to share authority with others. Oh, right. God shares his rule with human partners on earth. And so, in the same way, there's a parallel story of God sharing his authority to rule with spiritual partners. Yes. That is, until it all falls apart in a twin rebellion. So you have humans who want to rule on earth on their own terms. So they start building their own nation using their own definitions of good and evil. Yeah, the famous story of the building of Babylon. But check this out. When biblical authors like Moses or Isaiah looked back at the origins of Babylon, they saw more than just a human rebellion, but also a spiritual rebellion. What was the spiritual rebellion? Well, there were members of the divine council who, like the humans, didn't want to represent God's authority anymore. They wanted to be God, and they rebelled. And so these created beings deceived humans into worshiping them instead of the creator. And so Babylon becomes the biblical image for the combined human and spiritual rebellion. And so God scatters the people from Babylon 
into different nations. And in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses says this is when God also scattered the rebels of the divine council with them. So the nations are handed over to spiritual rulers. Yes, and this is why when the biblical prophets look out at the violent empires of their day, they see two dimensions to all the chaos and injustice. Human rebels who are being corrupted by the worship of spiritual rebels, the idol gods of money, sex, and military power. Yeah, when humans give their allegiance to these powers, it leads to a world like ours. Right, and the best example of this is the story of the Exodus, where we're told that the Egyptian genocide of the Israelites was inspired by Pharaoh and by the gods of Egypt. That's really intense. But it's not the end of the story. When God rescued the Israelites from Egypt and its gods, he invited them to become his covenant partners and learn a different way of ruling the world. And they agree to it, but in the end they don't honor the partnership. They give their allegiance to other gods. And so this leads to their exile in Babylon, where they become slaves once again to a foreign nation and their spiritual rulers, awaiting a new exodus into freedom. And this is where the story of Jesus picks up. He said he was here to rescue the world and take it back from the rebels. Which rebels, the human ones or the spiritual ones? Exactly. For Jesus, it was all connected. When he marched into Jerusalem for Passover, he was announcing the ultimate exodus. He was there to confront and overcome all rebel powers and authorities, and he did it by giving up his life. So this is what the Apostle Paul meant when he said that Jesus disarmed the powers and authorities triumphing over them by the cross. Yes, Jesus condemned our evil by allowing the rebels to unleash all their hate and evil on him. But then he overcame it with the power of his love and resurrection life. And then Jesus told his followers that all authority in heaven and earth now belongs to him. Yeah, the ultimate human and divine partner. This is really good news. Yeah, and it's why the apostles started inviting everyone to give their allegiance to the risen Jesus to discover freedom and a new way to be human. Now, while Jesus gained a decisive victory over the rebel powers, he didn't destroy them. They're still around causing problems. Yes, and in fact, they are the problem. The apostles said that humanity's real enemy is never another human. Rather, it's the spiritual powers that animate our cultural idols that inspire hatred, division, and violence. Ah, so when I see people hurting other people, behind it is the divine counsel gone rogue. How do you deal with this kind of enemy? Well, the Apostle Paul said we can resist by putting on the character traits of Jesus like armor, faithfulness, justice, and peace. And he said that our only weapon is the word of God. That is, the biblical story of good news that Jesus has overcome all rebels with the divine power of his life and love. Pretty good, right? It's good news, um, but it's still a part of our reality, and it's a part of our reality that I think it's vital we talk about, and I don't think it's talked about enough. And I know that you probably have a ton of questions after a video like that, and that's great. Um, we're not going to address all of them this morning, but if you'd like to learn more about the spiritual, the biblical concept of, of spiritual beings and how all that works, reach out to me. I'd love to give you some resources on it. And like I said, maybe we'll do a whole series on that topic someday. But now, while we watched that video, I looked out and I could see some of you were like really vibing with it. You know, you were like, yeah, yeah, this makes sense. I've experienced some of this, right? This gives some explanation to what I've walked through. This makes sense. Now, others of you were watching and thinking something like, this is so dumb. 
This is like a fairy tale. This is like a story. This is like a bad movie. This stuff doesn't exist. The, the tangible world is really all that there is. And if that's you, to you that I would say, how else do you explain the fact that from the very beginning of recorded human existence until today, people have been driven by these same desires for sex and money and power and violence. And people have used manipulation and military power and violence against each other to get them. How would you explain that? No matter where you fall on the spectrum, even if you are really apprehensive about all of this, the Bible treats the influence of evil as a reality, and I believe that we should as well. In this letter to the Ephesian churches, Paul talks about what it looks like to protect ourselves against the influence of evil, just like they said in that video. We're going to conclude our time together this morning and conclude this entire series by looking at his instruction in this area. This passage is one of the more well-known in all the Bible. It's called the armor of God. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of the armor of God. That's what he talks about here. He uses metaphors to describe six pieces of armor. He says in verse 13 that a Christian is supposed to, quote, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to still stand. A couple of important points to point out here before we jump into what the armor is and how it works. This is symbolic armor. Okay, that's really important. Paul references that it is from God, meaning the command is for us to put it on. This means, number one, that we can't manufacture these weapons and defenses against the powers of evil on our own. These are things that come directly from God. And we'll see this more in a moment, but these also aren't physical weapons. They're spiritual ones. Okay, number two is that our job is to take these resources from God and to, quote, put them on, Paul says. We are active participants in that way. I really want you to understand this. We are active participants with God. It's his armor, his resources, and he asks us to put them on and to stand. Right? Those are actually basically the two verbs that are used throughout this entire passage. Put them on, take them up, and stand. That's what we are called to do. As Edmund Burke famously said, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. We are active participants in this. We are called to put these things on and to stand. So Paul says that, then he goes on to explain what these six pieces are. He says, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. You see that we have these icons of the six different pieces that Paul talks about here. And notice that for each of the six, Paul uses the phrase structure that it's the blank of blank, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, etc. This is the same as Paul saying that the belt is truth, that the breastplate is righteousness. So these aren't names or qualities of the armor. Truth, righteousness, faith, peace, salvation, and the spirit are the armor themselves. Does that make sense? Give me a nod if that makes sense. These are not names for the armor. They're not qualities of the armor. These are the armor. It's metaphorical. These are spiritual resources given to us by God. Armor is a metaphor that helps us better understand how to trust in and use these God-given resources. And it was a metaphor that made a ton of sense 
to this first century audience. It's a metaphor that makes sense to us too. Paul is using this image of a Roman soldier. You probably learned in some history class along the way that the Roman Empire was famous for something called the Pax Romana, which is a long period of relative peace across all the different nations that the Roman Empire governed. You may have also learned that the Pax Romana was maintained by force, often brutal force, from Roman soldiers. See, Paul was a Roman citizen, Ephesus was under Roman rule, and this was an image that everyone understood, the armor that a Roman soldier would wear. And at this place and time, y'all, Roman soldiers were the most powerful and invincible force the world had ever seen. It was the largest empire at the time. They were basically unbeatable. And Paul is using this metaphor to help the Ephesians and then us, by proximity, understand that when we equip ourselves with these resources from God, we are invincible against the influence of evil. This is how we do it. He's told us here. Seems kind of important, right? Okay, you ready to hear what they are? Not if you're with me. Okay, let's jump in with the first one. It is the belt of truth. He says, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. This is really more like a girdle, if you will. It's, it's something that was put on before all of the other armor and weapons. It's actually a foundational garment. This is kind of the thing that held everything else in place. Everything that a soldier wore from the breastplate of righteousness to the sword to the shield, everything hung on it. Everything was built off of this first foundational piece. Paul says that this belt, this foundational piece is truth. So the question becomes, what truth is he talking about? Whether you're a Christian or not, all of us place our faith in something we believe to be true, right? For some of us, it's, we find our truth through, through public opinion. You seek out everyone's opinion, and, and you ask a bunch of people, and if you're in a group of people, a family or a friendship or something like that, you usually go with the truth that is most common in your circles. And if your truth bumps up against the majority of the people's truth in your circle, you're kind of one that's like, oh, maybe I got that wrong. Like, I think I'm just going to kind of go with what they say. Ultimately, this is placing your trust, finding your truth in relationships. Others of you, that's not you. You find your truth through practicality. You do what you think works most often. Whatever has led you to, to more intellect, to more achievement, to more money, whatever's worked, that's what you place your trust in. This is finding your truth. This is placing your trust in success. Now, some of you, the first two don't uh, happen to you at all. The third one is more like you. You find truth through instinct. You go with your gut. Right? You, you trust what, what your mind tells you. You don't need to ask a bunch of people's opinion. You don't even need to look back on experience necessarily. You know what you believe and you follow it. This is trust. This is finding truth in yourself. The problem with that is that I just named three fallible things. Right? Raise your hand if you've had a relationship fail you. Raise them up. Keep them up if you've uh, achieved something or, or gone for a success and it hasn't really worked out. Up again. Last one, you ever trusted in yourself and yourself has let you down a little bit? Three fallible things. Trusting in something fallible by definition fails us. But the belt of truth means trusting in something infallible. Trusting in God. Trusting in the truth of who he is and what he has done. The truth that he left heaven, put on flesh, and came to earth. 
the truth that he lived this perfect life, that he overcame the powers of evil by taking them on, laying his life down on the cross. The truth that he was buried and then rose again three days later that we'll celebrate in a few weeks on Easter. And he overcame death with life and he now offers that life to all of us. That's the truth of who God is and the truth of what he's done. It's foundational. It's what everything else is built on. Everything hangs on it. It's the first piece of armor. And with it comes the second and the third. The the second is the breastplate of righteousness. And this is kind of less like one of those big metal plates that you would stick under your shirt and more like chain mail. You know what I mean? Chain mail, like you, you put it on, it covers all of your major organs. You kind of wear it like a shirt in the front and in the back and over the neck. Paul says that this chain mail is righteousness, and he's talking about the righteousness given to us by Jesus when we place our faith in who he is and what he's done, that, that story that I just told. When we put on the belt of truth, we are given the breastplate of righteousness. And in his letter to the church in Rome, Paul says it like this, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. It's given to us, this righteousness of Christ. And this chain mail righteousness protects us by covering all of our vital organs except one, right? That's an important one. That's what the next piece is. When we place that belt of truth on and we we trust in who God is and what he's done, we also get the helmet of salvation. Now, part of what made the Roman soldier basically invincible at this time is that you couldn't kill him. Right? Between the chain mail that covered all the vital organs and the helmet that covered the head, every vital part of the Roman soldier was protected. This is what God does for the Christian. We are unkillable by evil. We may have struggles against it. We may be influenced by it, but it can never overtake us. It can never possess us. In Romans, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. You see, righteousness of Jesus to all who believe. Salvation to everyone who believes. This is given by God when you place that belt of truth on. We place our faith in Jesus. We are given salvation and righteousness through Christ. That's kind of the first half of the armor. The other half of the armor are the resources that we need to choose each and every day to take up so that we can stand against the influence of evil. The first one is the shoes of Peace. Now, in the ancient world, those who could afford shoes, which was not everyone, they wore some kind of sandals, usually one piece of leather tied with a strap around your feet. They were usually really, really thin, made of, like, like I said, one piece of dried leather that went on the bottom of your foot. But the military version, the ones that the Roman soldiers wore, were much, much stronger. The bottom would have several layers of this leather, a piece of leather and then an adhesive and another piece of an adhesive to where it was almost usually an inch thick. And then it had leather straps that went all the way up the shin to keep them really tied on tightly. And it was usually the bottom stuffed with wool or fur if the weather was cold. These were sturdy footwear. Paul says that for the Christian, these shoes, the metaphor, these are the gospel of peace. The gospel of peace. I think this is probably the most misunderstood piece of armor. You see, Paul uses the word gospel four different times in this letter to the Ephesians. The first one is right here. One of them is right here. The other three, well, just look at them with me. 
Ephesians 1.13, and you were included also in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. You were included. Ephesians 3.6, this mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members of one body, sharers in, together in the promise in Christ Jesus. And last one, he ends it by saying, and pray for me too, and ask God to give me the right words so I can boldly explain God's mysterious plan that the gospel is for Jews and Gentiles alike. This gospel, the consistent theme that Paul has is that we are unified by this gospel. No matter if we're Jew or Gentile, no matter if we're slave or free, no matter if we're male or female, no matter who we are or what we've done, we are united by this gospel of peace. This is peace that comes from the gospel, and we put it on our feet because it allows us to stand with, not against, every other child of God, regardless of how different we may be. We are unified together. Remember, this is what the whole first half of the letter was about, unity in diversity. And because we have the peace With each other through the gospel, we become a much more formidable opponent against the influence of evil than if we're splintered off, right? This is one of the things that makes division in the body of Christ so tragic. It makes us more vulnerable to the influence of evil. We see this all the time, right? Famous pastors that have shut everyone out who disagree with them are are falling all over the place. Denominations who have made various secondary issues essential and divided over them are are struggling. Homogenous churches are dying. The influence of evil is having a field day because we are so divided. We're so divided. That's why Paul urges us to put on the gospel of peace with our brothers and sisters so we can stand with them. For the Christian, this isn't about what we're standing on It's about who we're standing with, the gospel of peace. Next, we have the shield of faith. Take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Now, this shield isn't like one from Captain America or or something like that. It's not one of those small, like, circular ones that you were real mobile and you moved around a lot. The ones they used in the first century were full-body shields. They look like a door. You ever seen these? You could sit down behind them. And they would completely protect your whole body. No enemy arrows could get through. They were made of thin pieces of wood glued together, kind of like the sandals and strips to make them really thick and impenetrable. And then they were covered with this big piece of leather that kind of kept it from splintering and from rotting. But it also had the added benefit of extinguishing any arrows that had been set on fire before they were launched at you because leather doesn't burn up. Paul says that for the Christian, our shield against the attacks of evil sent our way is faith. Now, I don't think this is the initial faith, the the thing that we talk about when we talk about putting on the belt of truth. I think this is the everyday faith and trust in God as we go about our lives. Not trying to control everything, but really letting him lead. And we can remind ourselves to trust God every day in a bunch of different ways, but I think the most effective is remembering what God has done his faithfulness, and being grateful for it. We can do this through prayer individually, but also through sharing stories with our brothers and sisters, reminding each other of when God has been faithful, what he's doing. We actually do this every week in in our restore group. We, We have times where we get together and we just share, good and bad, where God is showing up in things in our lives. 
I will tell you that I leave that place each and every week reminded of just how trustworthy our God is. We just sang about it, how he never lets us fall, how he comes after us, how he chooses us again and again. And I'm so much more ready and invigorated to place my faith and trust in him every day when I share stories about his faithfulness. Now, did you know that when flaming arrow attacks were especially bad from the enemy in battle, Roman soldiers, instead of just kneeling behind their own shield, they would actually bring them all together and they would line them up side by side and make this huge wall. And when these shields were next to each other, absolutely nothing could get through. A big shield by itself was great, but a wall of shields was impervious to attack. You could not get through it. When we get together, and we share stories of trusting God and him coming through, we are lining up our shields of faith against the attack of the enemy. It's truly a beautiful thing. And finally, the last piece of armor, the sword of the Spirit. This is the only weapon in the armor, but in context, I still think that it's a a defensive, not an offensive weapon. Because like I said earlier, there are really only two verbs in this passage. Take up this armor and then stand doesn't talk about advancing. It doesn't talk about going after evil. It's God's job to attack evil. We are called to stand against it. This is mostly because we simply lack the knowledge and ability to attack evil. Like the video showed, these are spiritual beings, and the attack against them is done by the ultimate spiritual being, that is God. And spoiler alert, like they said on the video, we already won the war. God already did this Read on in God's great story, and you will see that evil is a defeated enemy, still battling, still struggling, but on borrowed time. The war has been won. But even if you think this is an offensive weapon meant for advancing against evil, there is still absolutely no excuse for using the sword of the Spirit to attack flesh and blood. That's just not in here. And it's inconsistent with the character of Jesus, and it's inconsistent with the story that the Bible is telling. Too many Christians throughout history have used the Bible to beat others down, to oppress people, and even to justify violence. We talk about this all the time here at Restore. Two weeks ago, we talked about the attacks in New Zealand. We discussed this Australian senator who used the Bible to justify the murders of Muslims in the name of Jesus. We saw this on a large scale in the Crusades. We've seen this throughout history. But guys, our battle is not against flesh and blood. I I don't know how it could be more clear here. Humanity isn't our greatest enemy. Our greatest enemy is the evil humanity too often embraces. And we are called to use the sword of the Spirit. Like they said in the video, the story of what Jesus has done and how he has overcome and how he has beaten evil how he took the worst it had to offer and then beat it. We were called to use that along with the other five pieces of the armor to stand against the influence of evil. So what does this mean for all of us? I think that Paul spoke this metaphor to his original audience so that anyone who heard it then or came across it later would be asking themselves a question after reading this passage. And that question is this, what part of the armor am I neglecting? What part of it am I not putting on? Because while it's true that we are invincible against the influence of evil, when we have this armor on, we have the the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, the shoes of peace, the shield of faith, and the sword of the spirit, the opposite is true as well. When we don't have these things, we are vulnerable to the influence of evil. 
So I'll ask us again, what part of the armor are we neglecting? What part of the armor are you neglecting? For some of us, it's the foundational pieces. The truth of who God is and what he's done. For some of you, that's where you are. You haven't put on the belt of truth, so you haven't gotten the, the breastplate of righteousness, the chainmail that covers your back and your front and your neck. You haven't gotten the helmet of salvation. If you're here and you've never placed your faith in Jesus, you're missing these foundational pieces. I know that sounds harsh, but I love you too much to lie about it. If you haven't ever placed your faith in Jesus, you are missing these foundational pieces. Now, if you're a Christian... You have these first three pieces. You've put on the belt of truth. You've been given the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation, but you may be neglecting the others. Maybe for you, it's the peace that comes from standing in unity with your brothers and sisters. That's just something you really struggle with. You see what someone posts on social media or you, you, you know their political opinions or something like that, and you're like, yeah, I know they're a Christian, but I just like can't stand with them, okay? We like to be divided, and we live in a culture that seeks to divide us. I'm telling you, no matter your leanings, no matter your belief systems, you turn on cable news for 30 freaking seconds and they are trying to divide. We, we are divided. Stand together in the unity that the gospel brings. Maybe that's you. Maybe the shoes of peace are something you need to examine in your life. Maybe for others of you, it's the day in, day out trusting of God, telling stories about all he's done, that shield of faith. Maybe you're not in a community where you're sharing those stories. You're not in a community where you're remembering all that God has done and being grateful for it. And if that's you, I want to encourage you to step into something like that. We have this gathering here every Sunday. We have restore groups and small groups that have spiritual discussions and pray together. Like Matt said when he first started, we have this call from God to come together, to be together as a church. We are a body without all the different parts working together, we are incomplete. Maybe that's the one that you're neglecting. Or maybe it's just the last one. Maybe it's, it's the story of Jesus as the ultimate weapon against evil. Maybe that's just not a story that you, you really like talking about or that you're comfortable telling. Maybe it's a story that you don't even feel like you know all that well. Maybe that's the piece. Maybe just diving into to the scripture, the truth about who God is and what he's done and getting more familiar with the great love of Jesus, the person and work of Christ. Maybe that's the step for you this morning. Whatever piece or pieces you're neglecting, this is too important to not do something about. Make a change, y'all. If it's the shoes of peace, the shield of faith, or the sword of the spirit, try putting like a reminder in your phone. Or a note on your mirror so that when you wake up each morning, you're reminded to, to put on these things. Start your day with them each morning. If it's the belt of truth of who God is and what he's done that, that comes along with the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation, make today the day you put it on. Make today the day you place your faith in Jesus. I'm not pressuring you to do that. I'm not judging you if you don't. I'm standing up here telling you that I love you too much to watch you walk in vulnerability without it. I have experienced the fullness of the love and grace and hope of Jesus, and it is unlike anything I've ever experienced before. It has been life-saving for me. 
as I've walked through some difficult things over the years. I'm telling you that I never mean to sound harsh and I never mean to sound judgy because that's not who I am. But I love you too much to watch you walk around without it. I do. If you'd like to talk more about that or maybe you want to pray, as soon as we finish, I'm going to be right over there in that prayer area. Just come talk to me. Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the truth of your word from Scripture. Thank you that Paul ends his letter with this sometimes difficult but very